morning, everybody. We are post-Easter. What a wonderful celebration that was last week. And we are back to the ordinary days. And so I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Today we're going to be spending some time in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as you turn, let me pray. Father in heaven, we pray a simple prayer that your spirit would tune our hearts and our minds to your word today. That we would see clearly, that we would hear clearly, and that we would respond. Thank you for doing this work in us and how you transform us and change us. We pray this for the sake of your glory. Amen. It's an age-old question. The question that every person who is serious about following God asks themselves at one point or another. It's a question that is assumed to be shrouded in mystery, a question that is pertinent to the young, pertinent to the middle age, and pertinent to the elderly. A question that if you get the answer right, you believe that it will change your life. And if you get the answer wrong, you believe that you will live out your days in relative obscurity. The question is this, what is God's will for my life? You've asked it before. And you should ask it. It's a good question to ask because to ask that question means that you already have a number of priorities in line. When you ask the question, what is God's will for my life? That indicates that you understand that God's will is greater than your will. It indicates that you trust him with your life. When you ask, what is God's will for my life? That, in some ways, indicates that you desire to please him with your life. And it shows that you have a level of confidence that you will be better off following his will for the rest of your days. Today we continue in this series that we're calling The Ordinary Days from 1 Thessalonians. We've been going through this book uh, and if you're new here today, if you joined us just for the very first time on Easter Sunday last week and you've come back, I want to welcome you. We are so happy that you're here. You're picking up in the middle of a series that we've been on now for a handful of weeks. And in this book of First Thessalonians, we see that what we do and the decisions that we make during the ordinary days of our Christian life contribute greatly to the person that we become. It addresses the ways that we grow in a relationship with God day in and day out, week in and week out, during the ordinary days that we have. And today we come to a section of the book that we might call, uh, or might say that address everyday morals, the types of behaviors and actions that contribute to a growing relationship with God. And they're related to this question of God's will for your life. So what is God's will for your life? Let's see what Paul has to say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
Please follow along with me as I read. Starting at verse 1, this is what he says. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So verse 3 tells us about as clearly as it can be expressed, what is the will of God? <laughs> your sanctification. Let's look together at what that means. This this part of the letter, we see Paul begins with a great encouragement in verse 1. He recognizes that these people are a people who are walking in a manner of life that is pleasing to God. And he wants to encourage them. And all the words following the rest of, of this part of chapter 4 are really a follow-on to encourage them, keep growing in a relationship with God. Keep trying to please him, he says in verse 1. Now I wonder how often you think about your life and the happenings of your life in terms of being pleasing to God. Do you ask yourself the question, when I do this, is this pleasing to God? Or when I do that, is that going to please God? We know that none of us can please God truly apart from faith in Jesus. The Bible is very clear about that. That favor from God to us derives from God's favor to his son that is applied to us. And that's why Romans 8.8 8 says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we talked about that a lot in Romans through the series this past spring. But a life that emerges from faith in God has a number of markers to it. And there's a sense in the New Testament, and even right here in this verse, that what we do or how we live is part of what it means to please God. And so you see in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8, Paul writes to the church there and he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So the urging to keep pursuing a life that's pleasing to God, just as you are now doing, is a great encouragement to the church there. It's an encouraging word to hear because, man, it's hard. (laughs) It can be hard to pursue faithfulness to God in this life. And it's an encouragement that I want to give to so many of you. You are growing. (laughs) Keep growing. Keep doing so more and more, day in and day out. Keep seeking to please the Lord with your life, just as you are doing. You know, as a pastor, you get a unique perspective on a large group of people. And I just have to say, I'm so encouraged to see how so many of you are growing. (laughs) How the conversations that you're having in your Sunday school class or in your small group or, or even as you engage with myself or Pastor Chris or Pastor Marty or Dan or Sean or Kyle or Rick as we hear the things that you're processing that indicate a desire to please God. Things like family tensions. I have tensions in my family and I, I want to navigate these tensions in a way that are pleasing to God. Or I'm in a tough marriage and The culture all around me is saying it's time to get out of this marriage and pursue some different notion of happiness in my life. But I know that's not what God wants me to do. And so I want to please him even though it's hard. Or the fact that so many of you are thinking carefully about different passages of the Bible that challenge the way that you had conceived God to be or the way that you think life should work out. And... You're taking the scripture seriously, even though you might not like what it has to say. Or those of you who are asking the implications that your career choices have on your ability to serve the Lord. It's a great marker of growth and maturity when you say, how do the big crossroad moments of my life affect the ordinary days of what God is calling me to do? And you are growing in these things. And so the encouragement is to walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord just as some of you are doing. Do so more and more. And that leads then to this bold statement. This is the will of God. Verse 3, look at it with me. Your sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy. Sanctification is the word, the theological word that the Bible uses to describe the way that God transforms you from sinner to saint. From rebel to friend. From one who lives a wayward life to one who's living a God-pleasing life. In our time, we often use the word growth. Are you growing in your relationship with God? The word growth is a general or vague way to talk about sanctification. God making you more and more like his son Jesus. More and more the way that you ought to be. More and more the way that reflects his holiness. And it's striking that in the Western world, our first question when we think about knowing the will of God 
is almost always related to what does God want me to do? But here we see that the primary area of consideration is not what does God want me to do, it is who does God want me to become? There's a big difference. We often think that God first and foremost cares about the direction that we take. The big picture things, should I marry her or should I marry her? Should I buy this house or should I buy that house? Should I take this job or should I take that job? And on down the line. And he does care about those things. He does. However, he cares much, much more about something else. Your sanctification. Your transformation. Your growth in becoming holy. He cares about who you are becoming more than he cares about what you are doing. And once you get those things in the right order, the other questions about what you're doing begin to fall into line. Because of course, of course, we all know that what we're doing informs who we're becoming in some ways, right? And and the truth of the matter is, is Jesus can so often answer the question of what I should do. Should I marry her or her? <laughs> should I buy this house or that house? Should I take this job or that job? What should I do? You can answer those questions much more clearly with the more basic question. Is if I choose this, which will contribute to my growth in holiness? God's will is your sanctification. If I marry her, will that contribute to my growth in holiness? Or will it if I marry her? If I buy this, will that contribute to my growth in holiness? Or will if I buy this? And on down the line. And here, Paul encourages them towards that growth, and he gives them a great warning of one of the things that could hijack that growth. He emphasizes multiple areas of what that growth looks like throughout the rest of this chapter. We call them everyday morals. But he emphasizes this first point with greater significance because he wants them to not be fooled by the nature of their culture. Part of their growth in sanctification is purity in their sexual ethics, or sexual purity, we will say. Now, many of you know, throughout the Roman and Greek first century cultures, that sexual immorality was considered to be pretty normal. Sex before marriage was common. Sex with people other than your spouse while you were married was common. Um, Incest was more common, certainly, than it is today. Prostitution had some commonality to it. And in some pockets of subculture, was very, very common. This led some historians to say things like, uh, wives are for childbearing, mistresses are for pleasure. <laughs> or a woman can gain status because they get married and divorced and then divorced and married and married and divorced and that's how they climb the social status ladder. Sexual immorality was normal in this culture. And in some ways, it sounds 
in a growing sense like the culture that we are becoming increasingly familiar with, doesn't it? Because the new sexual revolution in the West of the last 25 years has radically changed the way that our culture looks at sex. And it's not just the younger generation, though they have a very different beginning framework than those of us who've been around the block for many more years. And this is displayed particularly in what our culture views as now morally appropriate. You've heard me mention before a Gallup poll that was released in 2016. And the Gallup organization measures uh, every handful of years what our culture views to be as morally acceptable. And that poll indicated massive change in viewpoint, particularly along the lines of sexual ethics, that just indicate that we are becoming a lot more like Thessalonica than we might think. Here's some results. Measuring moral acceptability in 2001 and then again in 2016 or 15 on these issues. Homosexuality had a 23-point surge. 63% of the population believes that's morally acceptable. Having a child out of wedlock moved from 45% now to 61% of the population believing that's morally acceptable. Sex outside of marriage, generally speaking, 53% believed that was acceptable in 2001. 68% of our population now believe that's morally acceptable. Divorce, 71% believing that's morally acceptable. And as many as 16% of the population in our culture believe that polygamy is morally acceptable. Here are some other statistics for you that can be rather scary. There's a growing trend in our culture of people who engage in romantic relationships online or even have what you might call an online affair, thinking that it's innocent enough because it's virtual in its nature. But 40% of online affairs materialize into physical affairs. And so that little innocent dabbling that you think might not lead anywhere, has the great potential to lead somewhere. Maybe even somewhere that you don't want to go when you begin, but find yourself growing in as you continue. According to a recent Barna study called the Porn Phenomena, nearly 40% of practicing Christians who actively seek out porn feel comfortable with how much porn they use. And only one-third of people who would call themselves practicing Christians and who view porn say that they feel a sense of guilt when they use pornography. Do the math. 66% of people who are practicing Christians don't feel guilty about using porn. That's an indicator of where our culture is with regard to sexual morality and immorality. But you know, it doesn't take the statistics to really know this, does it? The statistics basically, they codify the things that we have already seen, felt, heard, and experienced. You know, you see it more on television than ever before. You see the temptations 
uh, of social media and how social media is not just a tool for innocent interaction, but it's a tool for, in some ways, sexual deviancy. You see how your kids are learning about these things and being exposed to the realities of sex younger and younger and younger. You see how pornography has taken a grip in our society at an, a level that we would call epidemic in nature. Our society is getting closer and closer and closer to Thessalonica. And so when Paul says in verse 3 and verse 4 and on that God's will for your life is sanctification, your growth in holiness, and then the very first thing he lists is the danger of sexual immorality. This is not some far-off, distant cultural struggle. It's very real right here and right now. He uses the word to describe sexual immorality, the word porneia, from which we derive the word pornography. And this is encompasses a wide variety of sexual activity. Sexual activity outside of marriage, adultery, premarital sex, homosexual, homosexuality, incest, prostitution, and of course we could apply it today to pornography. And he says very plainly and directly as you can say it, God's will for your life is your sanctification. Verse 3, what does that mean that you abstain from sexual immorality? How do you do that? You learn to control your body. You do this in holiness and honor, verse 4. Not, verse 5, in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. And so there's a sense, there's a growing divergence between those who follow God and how they view sex, sexual morality, what they do and what they don't do with those who don't know God. He makes it very clear. Those who know God grow in controlling your body. He calls us to holiness. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Peter writes, But he who has called you is holy. So also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Romans 6, 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And he gives a warning here. He says in verse 6, don't transgress and wrong your brother in this matter. That means, in plain English, don't sleep with your brother's wife. <laughs> this is not God's will for you. And he re-emphasizes the call to holiness with two warnings attached. Verse 6, the Lord is an avenger of all of these things. And verse Eight, whoever disregards this teaching disregards not the words of man, but the words of God. Don't be tempted to think that the warning against sexual immoralities are simply warnings that are fabricated by people who are old fuddy-duddy stick-in-the-muds. 
Those who reject the warning reject God. Because your sexual purity is very serious business. Now the application is straightforward, but it's anything but simple, right? Guard yourself from entering into sexual immorality. That's the application. But we know that the temptation for lust is so strong. And so peel down a layer. Guard against your interactions in your relationships. Guard against this sexual immorality on your computer. Guard against it on your smartphone. Guard against it in your interactions with friends. Guard against it in those little flirtatious interactions that you're picking up on in the office. Guard against sexual immorality at all costs. Premaritally, if you are here and you're not married, guard against sexual immorality in your life. Because the growing culture is that this is commonplace. This is what we do. And some of you are here today and you might be thinking, man, I'm, I'm still a virgin and I'm in my mid-20s, late-20s, early-30s. I must be doing this all wrong. But don't believe that lie for a second. Guard against sexual immorality that you don't carry it into the marriage bed that you have someday. Guard against it during your marriage. Guard against it and help your partner guard against it. It's amazing to me how people can come and say, Pastor, I can't believe that my partner stepped outside the marriage. And I said, well, tell me about your marriage. What, what is your life like? What is your intimacy like? And well, we haven't had sex in, in three months. You can guard against sexual immorality for your partner through an ongoing, healthy sexual relationship. The Bible clearly talks about this as well. Guard against sexual immorality if you're single, particularly those of you who are divorced or widowed. I've, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the excuse. Pastor, I used to be married. I've had sex before, so it's okay that I'm having sex right now, even though I'm not married. As if the command is just somehow for the young among us who are, haven't been married yet. No, that's not God's will for your life. God's will for your life is sanctification. And so guard against sexual immorality. It's the opposite of God's will for your life. His will is your growth in holiness. And so the application is clear. But it's anything but simple. And he gives this all in the framework of encouragement toward ongoing growth with great warning attached. And just so we're clear on some of the practical realities of a Christian who lives a sexual, immoral life, let me list just some of them for you. These come from Chuck Swindoll. The list is incomplete, but it addresses particularly those of us who have a temptation toward adultery in our marriages. Some of the implications of adultery are your mate will experience the anguish of betrayal, shame, rejection, heartache, and loneliness. And no amount of repentance will soften those blows. Your mate can never again say that you are a model of fidelity because suspicion will rob her or him of trust. Some of the implications of 
Adultery is that your escapades will introduce to your life and most likely to the life of your spouse the very real probability of sexually transmitted disease. And here's one that often is not thought about in the moment. But the total devastation your sinful actions will bring to your children is immeasurable. Regardless of their age. Whether they're young or teenagers or even adult children. For the younger ones, their growth, innocence, trust, and healthy outlook on life will be severely damaged because of your infidelity. The heartache will cause your parents, your family, and your peers is indescribable. An implication of adultery in your marriage is the embarrassing Embarrassment of facing other Christians who once appreciated you and trusted you and respected you. And that embarrassment will be overwhelming. Your decision for infidelity, your fall, will give license to others to do the same. Because they look at your life and they say, well, hey, I know so-and-so and, -so and he, he was in a tough marriage and he pursued what he perceived to be sexual fulfillment or happiness outside of his marriage. And so maybe I should do that as well. Your inner peace, the inner peace that you once enjoyed, will be gone. And the most important, of course, is that the name of Jesus Christ, whom you once honored, will be tarnished, giving enemies of the faith further reason to sneer and jeer. God's will for your life is your sanctification. And so we see that the thrust of the passage is this. Align your actions in life with God's will for your life. Align your actions in life with God's will for your life. Your sanctification. And so Paul ties our sanctification to our sexual morals. And then he moves to encourage them along the way and encourage us along the day with a few other elements of everyday morality. Look with me at verses 9 through 12. He changes drastically the tone and the direction. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Brotherly love, hard work, a quiet life. Brotherly love, hard work, a quiet life. These three can describe the ordinary days of the Christian life, can't they? The first one he encourages them in is brotherly love. This is the intentional love toward other Christians that's familial in nature. He says that they're already taught by God on this, and indeed we've been taught by God as well. That our love for others stems from God's love for us, doesn't it? Ephesians chapter 5, 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering, and a sacrifice to God. 
Now, you may look around Old North Church and you say, I, I'm with these people for the time being. God's placed me here in this time and this place with this church family. And I've become so accustomed to this church family that I decided to commit myself to them. I've even become a member. We're going to grow in sanctification together. But I don't know if I can love them. Because they are not like me. And that's one of the amazing things about God. Isn't it amazing how people, when people are bound together around the most important things, around eternal realities, that God gives them this incredible ability to love people who aren't like them? That's why Romans 5.5 says that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so the encouragement is you are growing and practicing brotherly love toward one another. What does that mean? What are the practical ways you do that? We could list a (laughs) hundred. You don't need to be taught how to love people. You just need to actually start doing it. Alongside of this love, he calls in verses 11 and 12 to work hard and to live a quiet life. And there's a lot we could say here, and time escapes us. But simply put, we could say that our love for each other is also, or is part of, participating in the family of God in such a way that we give more than we receive, that we don't draw attention to ourselves or negative attention to the church family in which we are part of. We engage the community around us in such a way that when we engage our society as Christians, we represent our family. Now you know that you represent your biological family in whatever you do. But he makes it a point to say not to, or to, so that they may walk properly before outsiders dependent on no one. That's another way to say, When you're engaging in the community, in your work, and in your quiet life, you represent your spiritual family as well. You represent Old North Church. You represent the body of Christ more broadly. And so, align your actions in life with God's will for your life. Your sanctification. Let me close with one more reminder for you about the nature of deception and the devastating effect of sexual immorality and adultery in our time. Because this is an issue that we don't talk a lot about. We probably don't talk proportionally enough about when you consider how significant or pervasive it is, even among Christians today. And so I read this story to you. It's a true story. The names have been changed. And it illustrates the idea of sexual immorality and the consequences and God's work very clearly. It's about a person named Clara and her husband Chester. They'd been married for 28 years, Clara and Chester, and their marriage was a good one. It wasn't a fairy book marriage. It wasn't idyllic in its nature, but it was very good. 
by now they had three grown children whom they loved dearly and who loved them dearly as well. And they were blessed with the financial security to allow them to dream about a retirement home. And so they began to look. And one day they went to look at a home that a widower that we'll call Sam was selling. They liked the home a lot. And so they returned home. They talked about their plans day after day, week after week, and some months passed. Then that fall, Clara announced to Chester that she wanted a divorce. He went numb. After all of these years? Why? How could she deceive him? How could she have been nursing such a scheme while they were even looking at their retirement home together? Well, she said she hadn't been. At least not all that long. Actually, this was a recent decision that came about now that she's found another man. Who? Well, Claire admitted that it was Sam, the owner of the home that they were considering to purchase. She had inadvertently run into him at the store one day after they had discussed the sale. They had a cup of coffee together. And later the next week, they went out to dinner. For several weeks, they'd been seeing each other privately and secretly. And now they were sexually active. And since they were so in love, there was absolutely no turning back for Clara. She was overtaken by her emotion. Not even their kids, who of course abhorred the idea, were able to dissuade their mother. One, on the day that Clara was to leave, Chester walked through the kitchen toward the garage, and as he approached the back door, he realized that when he, had returned, when he would return home, Clara would be gone. And so he hesitated, then he turned around and he looked at her and he said, Well, hon, I guess this is the last time. And his voice dissolved as he began to sob. She felt awkward, of course, and so she quickly gathered her things. She put them in the car. She backed out of the driveway to begin her new life, never to look back. She drove north to meet Sam and to begin this new life with her lover. And less than two weeks into their new endeavor, Sam was seized with a heart attack. He lingered for a few hours, and the following morning, Sam died. When it comes to morality, God is serious. He's as serious as a heart attack. If God moved that swiftly in every instance, most folks that I know would think again before they started an affair. Align the actions of your life with God's will for your life, which is your sanctification. And so the text gives us an encouragement to keep growing. It gives us a warning as we think about immorality and how heavy that piece of it is. And so I want to close with this because I know that some of, this, some of us in this room are struggling with sexual sin right now. I know it to be true. Some of us here today are 
or are cheating on our spouse or have cheated on our spouse. Maybe they don't even know it. Others of us are flirting with a coworker, seemingly innocently, and it could be heading toward an emotional affair. Some of us are actively engaged in viewing pornography. And at least most of us are struggling with the battle of the mind and sexual thoughts. And so a passage like this, where does it leave us? We ask the question, I've done this thing, I've cheated on my spouse, or I'm immersed in pornography, or I'm considering a divorce, or I'm doing any variety of things. Is it too late for me to know God's will for my life and to pursue it? Is it too late for me to grow in sanctification, even though I've done these things? And that's when we zoom out from this passage to the larger book and to the larger story of the gospel. The encouragement for you is remember who God is and remember what the gospel proclaims. Jesus tells a story of a young man who rebels against his father, who takes his inheritance, he squanders it on partying and women, he becomes destitute, lowly, humbled, not knowing if he can go back home, he crawls back to his father, not knowing if he'll be received. And his father receives him with open arms. He puts the robe on him. He celebrates his homecoming and even restores a relationship. And if you're here today and you're struggling with sexual sin, you need to know that so it is with every sinner who repents and turns back to their father. So the call for you is to cling to the gospel of forgiveness, to repent from your sins and cling to the gospel. Cling to it early and cling to it often. Cling to the gospel when you are in the moment of temptation that you don't fall into sin. Cling to the gospel after you've sinned and repent quickly lest your sin turn into a pattern of sin. Cling to the gospel as you become transparent with your struggles with those who are around you, who know you and love you and can help you. Cling to the gospel as you know that he who has called you to himself is faithful and will never leave you nor forsake you. Cling to the gospel as you pursue God's will for your life, your sanctification. And cling to the gospel as you align the actions of your life with God's will for your life. Let's pray. Father, help us to cling to the gospel, to the good news of the forgiveness of sins and a new life in you. Help us to grow in our holiness. Transform us more and more by the work of your spirit. Guard us against the temptations of sexual immorality, we pray. And grow our love and our work and our ability to lead a quiet life. We thank you for the ordinary days and how the decisions and actions of the ordinary days so dramatically influence who we become. Thank you for the work that you do in us to change us, to transform us.
that one day we will be presented to you as pure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.